the OpenAI project announced back in February that they had found a way to generate fake news uh, using artificial intelligence, but it was so good, it was so dangerous, they were not going to release it. And now they have. If you give me a sentence, I will type it into the transformer, which is supposed to then generate several paragraphs of fake prose around it, and we'll see how good it is. Well, okay. Um, my sentence is, the Washington Nationals will repeat as World Series champions in 2020. Oh, this is pitiful. Here's the completion. The New York Yankees will repeat as World Series champions in 2019. The Pittsburgh Pirates will repeat as World <laughs> Series champions in 2019. The Kansas City Royals will repeat as World Series champions in 2019. And on and on. It's got the San Francisco Giants in 2024. Maybe it's the fact that they don't actually repeat until 2024 that led Peter Thiel to think that this was such an outrageous uh, uh, artificial intelligence engine that it couldn't be allowed to see the light of day. Sam. Welcome to episode 287 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we express do not represent those of our institutions, our clients, our spouses, our pets, or uh, any members of our family. Uh, today, I'm joined by Paul Rosenzweig, founder of Red Branch Consulting and senior fellow at R Street, uh, by Nate Jones, co-founder of Culper Partners, uh, formerly with the National Security Council, and by Nick Weaver, who's a senior researcher and lecturer at uh, UC Berkeley in computer science, and I am Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Um, why don't we jump in? This was a uh, kind of a remarkable week for uh, the Foreign Agent uh, Registration Act and uh, for Twitter as an object of state-sponsored surveillance uh, and espionage uh, uh, and, uh, you know, bad, a bad week for uh, uh, several Saudis. Uh, uh, Nate, what happened? Unwitting sponsor of, of uh, foreign surveillance. Uh, so two, it looks like two of Twitter employees were recruited by a um, uh, Saudi agent uh, who is believed, I believe, I think, to be associated with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who is was subsequently uh, accused of ordering the assassination of uh, journalist Jamal Khashoggi in Istanbul. And, you know, it's a pretty straightforward story of recruitment. Looks like they got paid a pretty decent amount of money to access Twitter accounts um, to facilitate verifications on Twitter and the like. And, uh, you know, I, I guess for me, I found a couple of things interesting about this story. It's a pretty uh, straightforward application of FARA. These guys were acting as as agents of a foreign power, the Saudi Arabian government, and didn't register. That's not all that surprising or controversial. You know, the two things that I found interesting are one, the this seems to be a, a big problem in U.S. industry that's not limited to Twitter. Um, we've seen stories recently about um, uh, FBI Director Ray disclosing that uh, every FBI field office around the country has open investigations into uh, Chinese espionage, ranging from targeting the private sector to educational institutions. And I think this is a, a story that we probably haven't seen the last of yet in terms of 
private companies, public sector entities, uh, not doing a good enough job of managing uh, the insider threat risks that they face in this regard. And the second thing, which is, in my mind, somewhat unique to Twitter, is the thing that came through in the indictment was both of these individuals were clearly violating Twitter's policies. Their own managers at the company had stated pretty clearly that their jobs did not require access to this type of information. Yet Twitter took, it seems, limited to no steps to try to implement that through technical means. Um, at least in my experience, a number of other large technology companies in the U.S. take steps to implement their policies through technical means, limit employee access to user data in these kinds of scenarios uh, to a, a small handful of people with the actual need to access it. And in both both of these cases, it looks like these individuals did not have the need to access it for the purposes of their job, yet still had the technical ability to do so. Um, so hopefully that is a wake-up uh, call for Twitter, and, and I hope that they're going to go do something about that. Isn't there something in there that suggested that, that by December of 2015, Twitter had woken up and started yeah. doing something about this, maybe because they were approached by the FBI saying, uh, uh, you've got somebody stealing your information. Um, uh, but, you know, that Twitter's always been sort of a low-rent wannabe social media giant uh, as opposed to an actual social media giant like uh, YouTube or uh, LinkedIn or uh, uh, Facebook. And so they they don't have the uh, the support and the budget to do the kinds of things that those other companies do. I mean, there was certainly a time when they didn't, but uh, I suspect that now they can scrounge up enough money to to take these kinds of steps. But as you said, the the indictment suggests they've done at least some of that. Hopefully, they've they've invested some some time and energy and and money into carrying that out. There's another thing that gives Twitter a uh, stronger incentive is they're now a target of a lawsuit from a Saudi dissident in Canada. He's the one whose phone got pwned by the NSO group and the like. Amongst other things, Twitter notified some of the other victims, but didn't actually notify him. And so there was some reporting on this case a couple months ago. Um, and Twitter's lack of notification and lack of controls is part of a uh, federal lawsuit now. Um, we'll see where that goes. Here's a question I have for you, Nate. Um, usually these cases turn out to be espionage cases uh, uh, and you prosecute under espionage acts or trade secret theft cases. A lot of the Chinese espionage cases against uh, private companies uh, were prosecuted as uh, um, a theft of uh, uh, trade secrets or intellectual property. This uh, Farah, um, it is true that uh, uh, the Foreign Agent Registration Act says you need to register if you're acting as an agent, but there's a defense that says if you if you're engaged in commercial activity that isn't unlawful, uh, then you don't have to worry about FARA. Uh, so I wonder whether uh, uh, this is really as strong a case as it sounds like when you read the indictment and the uh, FBI affidavit. Yeah, I think I think the other statutes you identified, the espionage statutes and, and the t trade secret theft statutes, 
pose uh, some some greater challenges to the government, obviously, because of of what the the government of Saudi Arabia was going after here, which doesn't easily fit within either of those statutory schemes. Um, I, I suspect that these individuals will offer up that defense. Um, it, it's, I haven't seen many cases like this, so it, um, it, you know, it, it will be, uh, a case of first instance, I think where judges will have to grapple with that a bit. Um, but I, you know, there are exceptions to, to the commercial activity defense and, and, um, you know, it's not clear that the activity that these individuals were actually engaging in on behalf of Saudi Arabia was itself a commercial activity. They were presumably doing commercial activities and other aspects of their job um, that would have been protected. But um, this specific thing does not seem, in my mind, to to fit within the commercial activity. Uh, I think that's prob- probably right. But I also remember, and this is a, I. I, I uh, not uh, the world's uh, greatest Farah expert, but Farah has had a very intense focus on whether you were lobbying mm-hmm. and influencing public opinion on behalf of a government, uh, uh, which is not what's going on here. Um, uh, and it, Farah is notorious for having been interpreted pretty leniently uh, until Robert Mueller got a hold of it. Uh, um, and now Mueller alums are running the office and they're much more aggressive in their interpretation of Farah. But it isn't clear to me that the rule of lenity is going to smile on a lot of these these prosecutions. Yeah. Uh, and in the case of Greg Craig, we already saw one failed attempt yep. at it. So they've they've had some challenges already. So I think that's that's a good point. Okay. Uh, so Nick, you mentioned uh, an NSO exploit uh, on behalf of the Saudis. Uh, uh, they're also in the press for uh, uh, having helped India uh, uh, spy on uh, um, – Journalists, human rights activists, political uh, uh, activists, uh, um, suggesting that even when they're working for somebody who's thought of as a reasonably democratic and rights-respecting government, uh, the NSO is going to create problems, or maybe these governments are engaging in activities that we're not as comfortable with uh, as we thought we would be. Or it's that NSO group is now cornering the market on bad actors. Do you think India is a bad actor? Well, when it's being used that way. So ah. if you're the problem is that, and especially going forward, is the Facebook decision to notify um, all identified victims that weren't subject to other. Um, legal request. This is this this is the fairly controversial, or at least it should be controversial, decision on the part of WhatsApp to say we found twelve hundred uh, uh, targets. We identified a, a hundred of them as human rights activists and journalists and other people that you would question the uh, uh, surveillance of, and we notified all twelve hundred, uh, which means that uh, uh, there's a good chance that a fair number of drug uh, dealers were also notified that they were under surveillance. Right, but the key is is this? I think long term it was the right decision because it creates a argument where you have fate sharing. 
So if you go with a better actor for your hacking tools, one that actually cares about how they're used by the customers, that won't happen to you. And so that seems to be a sea change in approach to how people treat these um, lawful hacking tools that if you actually do ensure that it the tools you build are being used in a lawful and reasonable manner, um, you don't have a problem. If instead you're in the Werner von Braun School of Rocketry, now you don't have a good selling case for the non-abusive users. You have confidence in in WhatsApp making that decision and deciding that some government uh, uh, wiretaps are going to fail, even though they're of good uh, targets, because they used a uh, uh, a malware uh, uh, agent that WhatsApp doesn't like. Maybe WhatsApp just doesn't like them because they're good at what they do. Uh, no, we don't like NSO Group. Uh, I personally don't like them because they cost me uh, two hundred and fifty bucks to uh, burn one of their exploits. Um, <laughs> the, the problem is, is NSO Group is now at this point proven to be a bad actor. They seem shocked, shocked whenever there's any misuse. And now it's uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Mexico, India. I don't know of any non-abusive users at this point in terms of countries that they've been selling to. I don't have any doubt that uh, that they, if you if you went to Austria, they would put the U.S. in that camp. Uh, uh, I'm not sure it's easy for NSO to say, oh, yeah, Mexico, no, notoriously uh, uh, an unreliable partner or India, the world's largest democracy. Uh, we can't do business with them. I, I mean, at, at what point do you say we won't do this uh, um, uh, with a country uh, or, or do you just uh, only work for Finland? in Sweden. Or what you do is you maintain a fair amount of controls over your tools. You have your employees be part of the process of which NSO does. Their employees right. are a significant part of the process and have your employees do some level of evaluation too as basically a double check. So if Mexico wants to only use it on the drug lords, fine. But if they want to use it on journalists, uh, you object. And the problem is, is NSO, with their business model, is in a position to do something about it. And instead, they just hire Juliet Kayam to act as a bit of greenwashing, and she's now working for the Washington Post. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm I'm not as confident as you that I would take a job where I I walk into the secret service of uh, 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 some countries that think they're more or less at war with a variety of groups and start saying, oh no, no, you can't do them. I, I'm here on behalf of uh, um, you know uh, uh, the. Uh, you know, Greenpeace uh, uh, colonial venture that decides what you can and cannot uh, do to uh, to protect your society, and and I'm telling you, this guy you can't go after. They don't. They have no idea, uh, or maybe they have some idea, but they're going to be told we have an order. It's a valid order. Uh, uh, they're supposed to say, well, uh, my judgment is that if you had a better court, you wouldn't have an order. It's just once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department. <laughs> 
apartment, says Werner yes. von Braun. <laughs> okay, uh, so let's let's move from uh, beating up uh, WhatsApp to beating up Facebook. Uh, oh wait, um, uh, yeah, Paul, the debate over lying in or uh, riding herd on the truth and falsity of political ads uh, continues to be a bleeding wound for Facebook, even though they're probably right to say we're not going to start deciding which political ads are just over the edge to uh, from misleading to false. Um, You may not disagree. You may not agree with me, but I, I don't see how they can possibly start um, uh, riding herd on those ads when whether you think it's false or true depends on which party you support. Uh, and uh, they're just begging to be dragged into a bunch of partisan fights. Uh, uh, and it's much easier just to say, look, your name is on there. It says the Republican Party wrote this ad. If you think it's false, start blaming the Republican Party. Don't 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 try to whine to mama Facebook to take it down. Well, I actually tend to agree with you that it's it's pretty impossible for them to set themselves up as the judges of truth or falsity in advertising in political ads in any more than it's really possible for them to scale up to judge the falsity of, of advertisements for um, sexual aid enhancement uh, advertising. I mean, the only reasonable choice that you can make is either to uh, to ban it altogether in which case you you have a very simple ma- mechanism or uh, to uh, to let it in and be unregulated and perhaps with some transparency uh, more about you know the who of it the how of it uh, and the why of it which which is reasonable uh, for them to do in a way that is you know different from truth or falsity but does give you a sense of you know is this a verified user who, who paid for the ad, that sort of thing, which they probably could accomplish. But um, they were put in a really difficult place. I was amused when earlier in the discussion you called Twitter a jumped-up wannabe social media giant. Um, and that may, may be sort of true. But Twitter's decision to, to get out of the business altogether has really put a lot of the other uh, social media actors in a, in a difficult position because now they can only – uh, they can only proceed by trying to explain why they're different from Twitter and why Twitter's answer doesn't work for them. Twitter's answer doesn't work for a lot of folks. It's, well, what's a political ad? If 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 I write if I ask for uh, promotion of a, an article I write that says uh, that uh, we only have twelve years before climate change kills us, uh, if it's Twitter, do they say, "Oh, we we were not going to let you pay to promote that because that's a political uh, uh, issue"? Is there any issue that's not political now that uh, the question of which pronouns you use has become political? Washington National. Nationals are clearly okay everywhere. I just want to assert that, right? <laughs> okay, well, you, you've just lost Texas. Uh, well, sorry, Texas. But but the truth of the matter is, is you're right. And that's why it's it's quite a challenge for Twitter. Um, you know, how they actually implement this in the end is going to actually involve line drawing between political and non-political, which is almost as controversial as between truth and falsity. Uh, yeah. and, and then the other factor that we really ha- haven't talked about yet is that, um, you know, Facebook, Twitter, social media are avenues for disruptors in the political sphere. See Donald Trump as a as a pretty 
Uh, yep. Easy example. Uh, if you ban political ads in Facebook and in Twitter or any other social media, that's essentially another instance of the Incumbent Protection Act that has yep. yeah, that Congress is always trying to, to, to develop for itself to keep their own jobs. So uh, on a lot of grounds, the, the uh, Facebook condemnation is a little, in my judgment, a little ill-conceived. What I will say, and I, and I kind of went by it quickly, but I will say this, there is a great deal more that I think Facebook can do to aid in transparency around uh, their political ads. That 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 I think there's there's clearly room there. Transparency about uh, what uh, micro targeting was done. Transparency about where it appeared. Uh, uh, which which version was shown to which groups. Uh, all of those things um, are going to serve as a check, a much better check on uh, uh, abuses by uh, political partisans than just saying um, Mama Facebook is going to decide whether it's true or not. That, uh, uh, that's so millennial. Oh, my mama's going to get you in trouble now. Um, and instead, it would be better just to let people live with the consequences of their own decisions. I don't know what to make of this, uh, a law enforcement officer trying to get access to a genealogical database of uh, uh, people's DNA, uh, went to a judge, got a warrant, uh, who decided there was probable cause that uh, uh, evidence would be found that would be relevant to a particular case, uh, and he served it on the uh, uh, DNA database and got the data. And people are freaking out that there's been a privacy violation. I, uh, Nate, uh, this is a mildly innovative use of uh, the warrant <laughs> requirement, but but frankly, I, I, he could have used a subpoena, couldn't he? Potentially. I, I guess my favorite uh, quote from the article article uh, is the company made a decision to keep law enforcement out and that's been overridden by a court. Oh, shocking. Yes. Oh, shocking. Courts uh, override individual decisions? Oh, no. <laughs> we've been having this debate about encryption and it turns out you can just declare that you'll never turn information over to law enforcement and you don't have to worry about legal demands. But no, I think, you know, uh, the fact that they can get into this information with appropriate legal process to me is, is not shocking or troubling at all. The, the interesting question to me in these kinds of cases is how did they establish probable cause? Um, you know, you can search third parties, you can search my neighbor's house if you think that it contains evidence of a crime that I committed. You can search a storage facility if you think I've rented a unit there and maybe storing evidence there. Without knowledge that the individual or their relatives had provided their DNA samples to an entity like this, it raises interesting questions about how you would establish probable cause to believe that in this case, GED match has information that would be relevant to you. If it's just based on the fact that a lot of people have given DNA samples and it might contain useful information, that to me is a little bit of a stretch and a uh, a place where you could potentially make mischief. Let, let me push back on that. Isn't that just making law enforcement jump through a stupid hoop? If they don't have information they can that's relevant, they can just say so. And it, it surely is not 
going to improve anybody's rights to say, oh, no, law enforcement has to go out and find out independently whether there's that kind of information there. It's the easy way to find out is to ask. And if they say, oh, our policy is not to tell you, uh, that's remarkably self-serving then to say, oh, then we can't issue a warrant against them because uh, we don't know because they aren't telling us uh, it, uh, they could if they wanted to. Uh, and if we serve the warrant, that's the first thing they would say. But we are going to make law enforcement go find some other way to get that information. I mean, I think that, you know, at its extreme, that's a bit of a, to me, that's the exception that swallows the rule, right? Law enforcement does have to jump through hoops. They have to establish an appropriate threshold basis for obtaining the appropriate legal process. And that's, that's not a problem. Wait, if they, if if they, if they filed, if they served a subpoena, they wouldn't have to establish that the data was there. They'd say, we, we have reason to believe it's relevant, uh, and uh, there's reason to believe there's relevant data there. Uh, and the response of the company would be, no, we don't have any data for you. Sorry. Uh, how can it be, if you meet the higher standard of a search warrant, uh, uh, that one of that hi- that higher standard uh, makes it impossible to get data or even to get answers from the company? That just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. I would argue that it's an open question of whether they can use a subpoena or not. I, I would too, Stuart. But the idea is, of course, that you know your argument would have won in in uh, Carpenter, uh, right, uh, with the reverse data dumps, where yes. the subpoena was considered inadequate. There's something about large scale collections of data that a concern the public and b have generated. Warrant requirements. So, I, I mean, I, I'm kind of with Nate that you can't really have an exception that swallows the whole rule. If we make a decision in uh, in the context that a warrant is required, you can't say, well, that's wrong because that makes it harder for them to show probable cause. That's the whole point. So I think you're really pushing back on the idea How about that probable be- cause that probable cause that means something, right? This, there, there ought to be there ought to be some reason to believe that that your suspicions about this person will be uh, uh, validated. So- actually, here it's actually important to understand what was actually given in response to the warrant. So GEDmatch has been used by police before they implemented this policy to do genealogical searches. This was how the Golden State Killer was found. They changed their policy in response to the public outcry on that, saying that you had to affirmatively opt in for your genetic material to be used for law enforcement searches, but not everybody else's searches. And so what the warrant was for was to allow law enforcement to search like anybody else does in that database to find potential familial matches. Even even more outrageous to say our policy is to discriminate against people who are trying to catch criminals in favor of people who are trying to find out who their third cousin, fourth removed might have been related to. That's nuts. Uh, and, and then to say, and when you go to a judge and the judge says, yeah, I think this is something that uh, you're entitled to uh, get the information on to say, oh, that's you, you picked the wrong uh, result. You you had your choice of subpoena, but well, I don't think subpoenas are 
Carpenter right because Carpenter, you know, mush, mush, mush. Uh, and uh, uh, a, a search warrant requires you to establish something that uh, is irrelevant to the criminal uh, or to the privacy interest of the party in, in, at hand uh, and uh, nonetheless will defeat the uh, ability to get the uh, uh, the order. I, it just does not make sense to me that uh, um, it, we're – turning this into a privacy scandal. Uh, uh, but all right, so uh, we've milked that one. Uh, um, a artificial intelligence going to save us. Uh, uh, there's a National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence that put out an interim report. Uh, uh, Nick, I went through it. It is um, as sensible as, uh, you know, uh, a dishwasher liquid, uh, it, uh, uh, it doesn't say anything stupid. It doesn't say anything profound. We ought to spend more money. We ought to uh, do more to, uh, uh, encourage cooperation between the private sector and the public sector. Uh, DOD needs to do a lot more to organize the way it approaches, approaches AI. I didn't see anything to disagree with, I didn't see anything that I thought changed the climate around uh, government, DOD, and artificial intelligence. Agreed. To me, it read, read like motherhood, good, apple pie, good. Um, and we're really kind of using AI as a catch-all term for machine learning and a bunch of other stuff. And so we might as well have just called it general data science. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to try to get a few people on to talk about uh, AI in more uh, detail. Uh, but I, I, here's a story I love. Uh, uh, there was a uh, – you remember the Open AI Project, which Peter Thiel has funded, uh, uh, announced back in February that they had found a way to generate fake news and uh, fake stories uh, uh, using artificial intelligence. But it was so good. It was so dangerous. They were not going to release it. And now they have. Uh, and I got to say, it is sad. Um, it, you know, it, it produces coherent prose, but the prose doesn't actually mean anything. So here's my my proposal. Uh, we're going to make Paul our guinea pig. Paul, if you give me a sentence, uh, I will type it into the transformer, which is supposed to then generate uh, several paragraphs of fake prose around it that are sort of related to the sentence, uh, and we'll see how good it is. Uh, well, okay. Um, staying with my theme, my sentence is, quote, the Washington Nationals will repeat as World Series champions in 2020, period, close quote. Oh, this is pitiful. Here's the completion. The New York Yankees will repeat as World, Ch World Series champions in 2019. The Pittsburgh Pirates will repeat as World <laughs> Series champions in 2019. The Kansas City Royals will repeat as World Series champions in 2019. And on and on. It's got the San Francisco Giants repeating as World, champions, uh, World Series champions in 2024. This, uh, you know, there it is. The Giants um, are never this... allowed to repeat. They're always supposed to take a year off between victories. I, you know, I, I, it, maybe it's the fact that they, they don't actually repeat until 2024 that led Peter Thiel to think that this was such an outrageous uh, 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 artificial intelligence engine that it couldn't be allowed to see the light of day. Sad. Nick, I, there's a great Wall Street Journal. It's very sad, but it's a, it, it, there's a real lesson in it uh, about uh, a, uh, 
a woman, an Israeli woman who's taking what looks like a gap year, uh, uh, gets her cheapest flight to Israel is through Moscow. She goes through Moscow. She has a quarter ounce of uh, marijuana in her luggage. Uh, they arrest her and then they are sent to Russians are essentially saying we will release her if and when a, a, um, a hacker who is wanted for extradition to the United States is returned to Russia. I have to say this tactic, as blunt as that, uh, tells me that if you've ever worked for the U.S. government, uh, you really can't afford to change planes in Moscow. Or China. So yes. we've been seeing this escalate for a while. So the U.S. has been getting more aggressive. So we have the the CFO of Huawei in Canada. We have um, probably the most famous case was a few years back where um, the U.S. Marshals managed to basically snatch off a son of a Duma minister wanted for hacking charges for extradition in a country with no extradition treaty with us. And so... This has been escalating, and the response from China and now Russia appears to be basically hostage-taking. So Nate, let me ask Nate. Uh, this is – there's a direct line from our naming and shaming and indictment of the GRU and uh, uh, PLA uh, uh, units uh, uh, from those to this kind of tactic. Uh, um, have the, uh, the Russians figured out how to get us to stop that? Hopefully not. Uh, you know, this kind of tit for tat happens all the time in in all kinds of different contexts. Yeah, but not and to not to Israeli students on a gap year or uh, <laughs> uh, you know uh, uh, former uh, DHS and NSA officials who happen to be uh, on holiday, uh, which is my concern. Um, it, yeah, but there's a real the, risk you, here, for sure. And and I think it's up to the U.S. government to to identify that risk and figure out how to, to work with their people to mitigate it. Right. Um, and so they need to be making sure they're doing what they need to do to, to get these people out and to make sure that other folks who work with them are not landing in prison on connecting flights in these places. Um, but you know, as soon as the, these kinds of threats start dictating your policy, you're in real trouble. Um, if you think it's good policy, you have to stick with it and mitigate Russia's ability to respond in this kind of way. Um, you don't start, you know, um, conceding. All right. Let's do a lightning round. Uh, Paul, when did just blowing off the United States Senate when they uh, call you to testify become a thing that anybody could do? Well, um, it's becoming more of a thing these days. Uh, you know, our, our president is a leader in it, but so are, um, you know, social media giants, uh, whether it's the U.S. Senate or, you know, uh, the British House of Commons or requests for information in uh, France or and Poland, to my knowledge. Yeah. I think what we're coming to learn about legislative bodies is that they have uh, very dull teeth very short arms. They don't really have a lot of enforcement authority. And these days, um, you know, you don't even suffer the personal opprobrium of failure to appear, right? That, that comes yeah. from, you know, people sneering at you and saying you need to appear. So, so I think, um, 
increasingly absent a, a major change in what people are doing, it's going to be uh, a long part. It's part of a long term weakening of uh, congressional authority. I, I mean, I suppose we should say that was uh, uh, Apple and TikTok who, who didn't yes. show up for a hearing. It just yeah, they just did not show. They got uh, the usual empty chair uh, uh, stuff. But that's the that's sort of a little like our naming and shaming indictments. It, it, you do too much of that, and it's more a confession of weakness yeah. than an embarrassment. Uh, here, here's a test question for every listener to this podcast. Before we talked about it, did you know that they hadn't shown? Yeah. And the answer, I suspect, is 98% no. Yep. Okay. Ted Cruz called out uh, uh, U.S. Trade Representative for uh, continuing to stick Section 230 immunities for Silicon Valley into its trade deals. And my impression is they said, uh, yes, Senator Cruz, uh, um, our seat's not empty, but uh, uh, we're not going to change what we're doing. Uh, uh, It's it's kind of remarkable that uh, USTR is sticking to this despite the uh, opprobrium that's been heaped on Section 230, but but there it is. Uh, okay, Mozilla. I, uh, Nick, I'm going to ask you to explain this in a very short period of time because uh, I, we've covered this before. Mozilla is telling Congress that the ISPs who are complaining about uh, uh, doing DNS over HTTPS are blowing smoke. Is that uh, the short version? It's a wasp landing on a nettle. Somebody's going to get stung, and I don't care who. <laughs> so you so you think it's a you think Mozilla is blowing is is blowing as much smoke as the ISPs? Yes, because the problem is is DNS over HTTPS doesn't really make sense from a security viewpoint, or from a privacy viewpoint. Because what do you use DNS for? To find out what computer you go talk to. But then you go talk to it, and you can and you can be seen going to talk to it. I, that right. that strikes me as plausible. So that the main reason to do this is to disadvantage ISPs because Mozilla and Google disapprove of ISPs and their use of their uh, favored position as providing connections to the internet uh, for advertising and other purposes. So it's really just it's- a, a fight between two big industries now. And what it seems to me is concerned that ISPs might start to use DNS data um, for advertising purposes because that is metadata that is given to the ISP rather than something that would be under wiretapping. But there's no indication that ISPs really are doing this. And Comcast has actually come out with a DNS privacy policy that is way better than Google's. Huh. So I, I just, I, 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 I want to go here to close because, well, pew, pew, pew. Um, it, it really is the 21st century. People are using lasers to attack talking computers. That, that is to say, Alexa, and uh, I guess it's just the the, the uh, Amazon uh, uh, talking computer that they're attacking. No, it's all of them. I don't understand. I'm not sure the the guys who are doing it actually understand how they're getting uh, 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 Alexa and the other uh, uh, systems to respond, but they are. 
Um, what it appears to be is that the MEMS microphones, microelectronic mechanical systems, will actually resonate with a laser projected onto the device itself as long as you have enough power. Do you have to modulate the uh, – Yes. Uh, yeah, okay. So basically what you do is you take the sound signal, modulate the laser, and then the – microphone on the other side remodulates it back into sound and treats it as sound. Oh, so this is really, there have been all these rumors about uh, how you could uh, uh, engage in uh, bugging a room by putting a laser uh, beam on the windows and then the windows will vibrate and the yeah. laser will vibrate and you can get the information from the laser. This is just reversing that. You say, yeah. okay, so now we'll put the laser in and we'll modulate the laser and it will change the uh, uh, the grill around the, uh, the mic. Yeah, and it's... Uh, it's the microphones in particular that are used in these electronic devices like Amazon, Google Home, your iPhone. They all have this property where they're actually really, really sensitive to microscopic vibration. And I think that's what is happening is that the laser is literally vibrating the case just slightly, which means it's vibrating the microphone just slightly. And that is enough for it to pick it up. And also, hey, Kevin Fu got lasers from the NSF. <laughs> yes, exactly. So uh, uh, a, a, a triumph of uh, adolescent uh, scientific uh, exploration uh, over common sense. Uh, this is never going to be a thing because uh, you're going to hear your uh, 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 Alexa respond. Actually, it might be. Really? I, you know, they, you've got to get a window. You've got to, you've, got to, you've got to shine the light. You can see the light shining through the window. You can hear Alexa responding. I mean, yeah, okay, yeah. If you're not home, uh, maybe it's a problem. But uh, hey, and uh, <laughs> anyway, don't you always walk into a room going, "Hey, Alexa, buy Stuart Baker's new book. Fifty <laughs> copies of it." Yeah, well, I'm, I'm certainly going uh, to start doing that, or at least I'm going to train my uh, laser to do that. Uh, okay, thanks to Paul Rosenzweig, to Nate Jones, and to Nick Weaver for joining me. This has been episode 287 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Send us suggestions for guests on, uh, by sending them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Follow me on Twitter uh, uh, and uh, on the off chance that I will send out, uh, as I didn't this week, uh, suggestions for stories. Um, leave us a rating if you haven't done that because uh, we live and die by the, our ratings and we will read the most entertaining uh, of your uh, comments um, uh, on the show. Coming up, we got Brad Smith from Microsoft talking about his new book. Uh, uh, that should be entertaining uh, since I disagree with a lot of uh, stuff that's in that. Uh, uh, and we're going to have a couple of um, uh, a we're going to try to get uh, some AI uh, algorithm uh, thinkers on uh, on to talk about ethical uh, algorithms. So please join us uh, next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.